Thank you for listening to this Lunchtime Talk, produced by the Art Gallery of South Australia. In this live recording, the Art Gallery's Assistant Curator of Australian Paintings and Sculpture, Elle Freak, highlights the work of South Australian artist Teresa Walker, Australia's first professional female sculptor. Nina Mani, my name is Elle Freak and I'm the Assistant Curator of Australian Paintings and Sculpture here at the Gallery. So wonderful that so many of you have found your way to this gallery. I know it's not easy at the moment because we have a few um, areas blocked off. There are things happening in the gallery and you can feel it. Um, but I'm very thrilled to speak with you today about Australia's first female sculptor and one of South Australia's first professional artists, Teresa Walker. And so today I'll be referring to these two portraits from the Art Gallery of South Australia's collection by Teresa, as well as a self-portrait which is in the cabinet, um, which has been very generously, thank you Tony, <laughs> been very generously um, uh, loaned to the gallery by the Walkerville Council, the town of Walkerville. So often we talk about Teresa Walker and we talk about her in her in the kind of context of her sister, Martha Barclay. Often we talk about them as colonial sisters, or the colonial sisters of South Australia. Um, but actually they were very different, very different in their artistic pursuits and also very different in their personalities from what we can tell. And um, also very different in terms of their movements across the new colonies. So I'll be focusing just today on Teresa Walker. Um, and as I said, the three portraits, but I will be referring to a few other works that kind of are in the mix of these portraits as well. Um, and I know that it's not easy to see them, but Tony Magnusson, the curator of European and North American art, will pass around some images and hold up some larger versions of the medallions to assist us. In fact, Tony, do you want to hand out some of them, some of them now? So before I go any further, I would like to acknowledge that we're meeting today on the land of the Ghana people of the Adelaide Plains. And it does feel particularly important to recognise um, Ghana cultural heritage and relationship with this land and to pay my respects to Ghana's past and present. Today we are speaking about 1830s, 1840s Adelaide and this is a very complex um, time in our history and it is a time where I will be talking about um, people who really saw the frontier um, of European invasion come through the country. Um, so, for instance, um, the two Ghana people depicted here. So we have um, Malawira Burka, uh, sorry, Malawira Burka here, and Magada or Magada here. Um, and they really did see the devastation of colonisation in South Australia. So they saw the destruction and the displacement of their land. They saw the loss of law, of language. Um, their children were, were taken away from them. Um, these are characters who are really, who divide, devoted their lives to really gain back um, just basic rights for Ghana people and for Ghana land. So I will be speaking to you about what we know about these um, sitters and also about how Teresa may have come to actually create these portraits, which we believe are from the 1840s. So piecing together the story of how Teresa Walker fits into art history, as well as the story of how these particular portraits, these three portraits, um, came to be made, is with um, its challenges. 
So the place of 19th century women artists in Australian art history is largely absent from our history books, and I'm sure many of you are aware of that. And the knowledge of, of who the Aboriginal people are in our colonial works is even more rare. Walker and her sister were largely unknown until the remarkable research, um, publication and book by our own emeritus curator, Jane Hilton, which was in the mid-1990s. And I'm sure many of you may have even seen the exhibition. Um, so we're very grateful that Jane was able to really see a lot of the artist's work and to give us really a grounding um, in how they fit into our art history. But as, as new information comes to light, as the kind of the Ghana um, Cultural Revival Project is also very much underway in Adelaide, we really are coming to, I guess, see more questions than answers at this point. For instance, these two portraits, so as I said, of Malawira Burke and Magada, were bequeathed to the gallery by Sir Samuel Way in 1916, but they were originally placed in the gallery's relics collection before transferring to the fine arts collection in 1986. And this is quite typical of, of art museums. Um, and that, was the, that is more in line with the material itself, I should say. They were most likely kind of treated as you would coins. So the sitters were originally unnamed on our catalogue, then misnamed, and now have been re renamed based on extensive research, both inside and outside of the gallery. And so I do wanna make a mention that so often we come to these um, conclusions from primary sources. So that could include anything, including correspondence of colonial officials and missionaries, as well as notes in diaries and journals, in published accounts of artists or settlers, um, and newspapers at the time. So I've actually had my head um, right in the insides of, um, of all of these primary sources over the last few weeks. But so often is the case with these sources, as valuable as they are, that they, they really do show bias and can lead to misunderstandings. So it does feel like our role as curators and art historians at this point in history is really about looking at what's not said or, or questioning what is said. Um, and I take that role quite seriously. So today I do want to really just tell you what we know and what we don't know about these three portraits. So I mentioned earlier that Walker was the earliest female sculptor to arrive in Australia. She was in fact really the only notable female sculptor of the 19th century. She was born in England at Canesham, near Bath, in 1807. And along with her sister, she studied fine arts in London before arriving in the colony in 1837. Their brother, Philip Chauncey, remarked that even then, in the 1830s, Teresa was decidedly clever in modelling. So as I mentioned, they arrived in South Australia on board the John Renwick in 1837. Teresa would then die in 1876 in Melbourne. So we're looking at a period where Walker was in Australia for about 40 years. In this time, she left South Australia and returned to it a number of times, making numerous wax profile portraits of citizens, not only in Adelaide, but also in Launceston, Hobart, Melbourne, and Sydney. And Jane Hilton has remarked that women artists of her time, if any, moved about their adopted country as much as she did. So from all accounts, she was a strong-minded, um, very determined person, woman, um, sister, wife, <laughs> artist, also a poet, um, and she did promote her art making. So she, as I said, she was a professional artist. 
So she was in South Australia for a total of around nine years. Not very long when you consider the 40 years. However, it was in this time that she, she really did make her most um, well-known work and, and perhaps even her largest body of work. So we know she made about 70 wax portraits. So she worked in this kind of low-relief um, wax modeling. And she made about 70. Of those 70, we know roughly 44, I believe, um, identities of the sitters. And within that group are many um, multiples. So wax was a medium that was very readily available in the, in the new province of South Australia. It was easy to handle, so easy um, to, to get a true likeness. It was also quite robust, even though it could um, you know, suffer from, from the heat. It was something that she could work with, she could get. It was fairly cheap. It was re a rewarding um, material. It was also a material that allowed Teresa to be a sculptor, which was in, in at the time a very male-dominated, um, obviously, form of art making. And I do have a quote um, which I felt was of relevance to Walker. So Priscilla Wakefield um, argued at the kind of turn of the century that women shouldn't be discouraged from working in the male-dominated arena of sculpture, for if the resistance of marble and hard substances be too powerful for them to subdue, wax and other materials of a softer nature will easily yield to their impressions. And I think that this would have appealed to Walker, who was um, very much of, of a in a high social um, position in society um, and who, who was kind of known for her taste. Um, so working in profiles, she, she did seek realism, highlighting the most prominent facial features. So, it, so most of her works are in the kind of neoclassical style of a profile where you could get um, the defining features of the brow, of the nose, of the chin. And so at the time, in, in October 1848, in the colony, in the South Australian Register, um, her group of South Australian portraits were praised for this sense of realism. And I'll read from the newspaper. They said, we have just seen a very pretty framed collection of medallion profiles in wax by a lady well known in the colony for her taste and talent, as I said. Um, and maybe, sorry, I've forgotten. Yeah. Tony, could you just hold up, not that one, the other one. So this, yeah, the group of portraits that was mentioned in the paper is this group here by Walker of South Australian residents. And so this was um, exhibited in Adelaide's first exhibition in 1847. And it's quite an interesting portrait because within it, we can see, we can see within the group a self-portrait by Walker. Um, <laughs> maybe I might hold it. Thank you. So we see a self-portrait, and we also see um, copies or multiples of the two portraits we have on the wall here. So we see Malawira Burka at the very top, and we see Makata at the very base. This work is in our collection, and it's in its original frame. Thanks, Tony. So she did seek realism. She wanted to capture a true likeness of these um, members of society, but she also was interested in this kind of I idealism, in, in trying to um, present to the audience a sense of the sitter's kind of inequalities. 
And so Deborah Edwards, who did a really fantastic show and publication on Australian sculpture, um, spoke about early colonial sculpture as this kind of development of realism and idealism. And I think that's certainly true of Walker. Her brother described her as someone who would kind of get wrapped up in kind of fantasies. And he said that one of her best fantasies was that she liked to um, imagine that in, he said marble, um, that you could find within it this kind of spirit of a person. Um, and she herself, as I said, was a poet. And she wrote a poem that also feels relevant here. So I do want to read it out to you. So she said, it's called Psyche, and she said, By a marble block a sculptor stood with glad and hopeful heart, but while the shapeless mass he views, he felt the power of art. He knew within enshrined there lay, concealed from mortal eye, what form the spirit might portray, the beau ideal high. So you can see that she is looking at, at sculpture from a kind of spiritual sense, um, in a way, and that was not uncommon at the time. You also often see sculpture in this period, of which I should also say there wasn't much in Australia at this time, um, at the time that Teresa Walker arrived in South Australia. Sculpture wasn't popular um, at that very point. Um, and in fact, the way that you see it developing across the colonies is based on, on really where there's money, Hobart, Sydney. And so there's money for the kind of um, patronage of actually making the material available and creating the works. Um, but you do see it developing with a particular style, as I said, based in kind of neoclassicism. Um, and often you'll see in early um, sculpture that the, the faces of the sitters are kind of without great expression. Um, so they're quite um, natural. And the idea for that really is to see that inequality that Walker's talking about. Um, you know, you, you're not distracted by some fleeting sensation of emotion or expression, but you get to see this kind of inner soul. So with that said, most of the kind of characteristics that you'll see of her portraits are kind of this sense of nobility or moral strength or leadership. So qualities that were perceived as important for the leaders of this kind of new society. And really in these early portraits, especially this group portrait that you're already holding, Tony, um, you do see how art of our colonial times could be a tool in kind of fabricating um, or kind of manufacturing um, a sense of what was happening in the colony. So her portraits were largely the products of this kind of emerging, emerging governments. Um, but she also did fulfill her own speculative concerns, and we know that she created at least three self-portraits, as well as a family group um, series later in life. So there were three self-portraits. One, yep, yeah, great, thank you. One is very early. It could possibly be her earliest known portrait, in fact, which, as I mentioned, is in the cabinet um, on loan from the Walkerville Council. It is the top image. Um, the second self-portrait was created not long after, and it's the one in the left-hand corner there. And that self-portrait is in the group of South Australian residents, as I mentioned earlier. And then the third self-portrait is much later, in the 1860s, in Victoria. Um, and looking at the three of them, comparing the three, is, is quite interesting, and it does really show the way that she kind of her role as an artist shifted and her, her status in society also shifted. So if you don't mind, I do want to just spend a few minutes 
um, having a look at these self-portraits. I'll then speak about the works behind us um, before concluding. So the earliest portrait is certainly the most exuberant and kind of freely formed. So we can see Teresa Walker not long after she arrived in the new province. And you can see that these kind of neoclassical lines. So the hair, her hair very elegantly um, falls kind of behind her ears and down her back and it really follows the kind of very sensual folds of the fabric that wrap around her body. You then see her kind of holding this fabric which has a lot of sense of energy and movement with her hand and her hand is, is very elegantly placed, quite modestly placed um, on her chest which made me think of you know, the birth of Venus Botticelli. So this kind of tradition of this kind of alluring sense of modesty and femininity. Um, you then see her self-portrait, which as I said, was not made that long after, still in South Australia, um, but it formed a more official group portrait. So it is a little bit more refined, a little bit more simple in terms of its line. Um, the silhouette is a little bit more, um, of, I guess it's tidied up, it's neat, it's on a black background. Um, and you see the artist now with her hair in a bun. And then the last portrait, which is of the 1860s, she's a little bit more, um, I guess, it's a little bit more um, conservative. It's more austere in compared to the other two portraits. She's now in her mid-50s. She's in her second marriage. Um, and she's presenting herself as this mature woman, certainly as one of the most, as I said, recognisable sculptors in Australia. So for the self-portrait, the second one, which was in the, in the group of citizens, of South Australian citizens, it is interesting that she's placed herself and her husband within that group. It's also interesting that she's placed, as I said, um, Mola Willaburka and Magada in that kind of society view. So her brother has written a kind of biography on Teresa Walker, um, and in it he does mention that, that Walker and her husband, um, Captain John Walker, who we now know, um, Walkerville suburb, as named after Captain John Walker, um, so he has mentioned that they, they did have a higher degree of self-worth, but it was for good reason. So he mentions that their home in the colony was the most imposing in appearance of any yet erected in the youthful metropolis, and no one in the infant colony kept so much company, so good a table, so fine a turnout as Captain Walker and his wife, oh, and his wife was one of the leaders of the little society. However, the good times didn't really seem to continue for long. Um, and the brother goes on to say that the captain was too speculative, too generous, too open-handed. And it is well known that after only a few years, um, he was, um, it was quite traumatic and, and he did feel, fall into heavy debt. It also coincided with a kind of financial crisis in the colony in the 1840s, early 1840s. Um, and then that did lead to his very short imprisonment in 1841. So the third portrait, as I said, you see her in a second marriage and she's a little bit more stable in life, perhaps. Um, in any case, I feel like in all three self-portraits, we could all agree that she is presenting a very confident image of an artist who was the most notable sculptor in Australia at the time, 
Um, and these self-portraits really do have a quite a rare place in that history um, of colonial portraiture. Thank you, Tony. She is, however, best known, I would argue, for the works behind me. Um, so of Magatta and um, Molawira Burka. So unlike her self-portraits, of which we only know one version of each, um, these, this pair of portraits were produced in multiple casts. They were also frequently placed in elaborate frames. These are perhaps her most elaborate. And many versions exist um, today. So we know that we have two versions in the gallery's collection. Um, we also know there's a pair in the National Gallery of Australia, two pairs in the Mitchell Library in Sydney, a pair in the Philadelphia Art Museum, and then as recently as 2015, a pair were anonymously donated to the British Art Museum. So they are really of an international reputation now. They are her only known portraits of Aboriginal people, and remarkably, she selected these works to um, represent her at the most prestigious exhibition venue in the new, or in the British Empire, really, which was at the Royal Academy in their London, uh, in their London, in their summer exhibition of 1841. So, I've mentioned Teresa was the first to do a few things. There's another one here. So she was the first Australian resident to exhibit at the Royal Academy, um, and this really was quite a big deal. So it's most likely that it was her father that took these portraits um, from Adelaide to the Royal Academy when he came and visited Teresa um, earlier that year. So it was quite remarkable to see that in the catalogue, Teresa was listed as sculptor, not the kind of lower class of honorary exhibitor, which was commonly reserved for women artists. Also, unlike many colonial artists in Australia, Walker titled her works for the Academy's catalogue using the sitter's names. So they were catalogued as Model of Makata, commonly called Pretty Mary, a native of South Australia, and Model of Kurtamaru, a native of South Australia. And so these are the titles that we've now given the works on our database. But I mentioned earlier that the gallery first had them unnamed, they were renamed incorrectly, and now we've named them again. Um, in addition to this, to kind of add some more layers and maybe misunderstandings to this story, Makata and Kurtamaru, as Walker refers to them, also had many different names, and there were many different spellings of those names. So, to give you a little bit of insight, Kurtamaru is known today as Malawira Burka, as I have been calling him, um, as Kurtamaru was in fact his birth order name, which really just means that he, he was his mother's first child. Um, Malawira Burka comes from Mola, or Mala, dry, Wira, forest, and Burka, old man. So dry forest, old man. Um, and this is consistent with the name Malawira, which refers to dry forest, um, an area known in the colony just in the kind of Olunga foothills. Um, and it's believed that Malawira Burka um, is from from this place, that that would be his ancestral, um, that he would have ancestral responsibilities um, as a Ghana member of that land. He was also known as Onka Paringa Jack and commonly referred to by the colonists as King John. So you can see how researching these works 
um, and colonial art in general is full of, of many kind of missteps and, and multiple layers. In terms of um, Makata or Magata, it's been, the name has been spelled with a C or a K or a G, um, but she's a little bit more of a mystery to us and also to, um, to, to many people that are working in the field of Ghana. So today there is little information about her and her name, but words that are similar in sound refer to head or to heel. So, so perhaps she's she somehow come to this name through those associated words. Why Teresa Walker may have chosen um, Malawira Burka and Makata for these portraits is certainly unknown. Um, it could be that they were very prominent um, members of the Ghana community and that they were, as I said, certainly for Malawira Burka, um, a well-known and respected um, person in the European eye, as the name, of course, King John would suggest. There are some other ideas that I have to why she may have made these portraits. So in 1838, the year that George Gola, our third governor, arrived in South Australia, he appointed Malawira Burka as an honorary police constable. So we know that Gola was aware of, of Malawira Burka. On the back of these works, which I had a look at earlier uh, yesterday, we also have inscriptions um, that suggest that the works were given to Mrs. Gula. So whether are these, it's these particular works that were given to Mrs. Gula, or we know that versions of these works were gifted to the Gulas, um, that may also suggest a relationship there. We also know that Gula promoted um, to the colony to make note of Ghana names and with the hope that some Ghana names would even end up on a map. We also know that it was in Gula's time that a school was established to teach um, the Ghana community in Ghana language. Um, and then that was closed in 1845, the same year that Malawira Burka um, passed away. We know that Malawira Burka, no, come through. Um, we know that he assisted um, missionaries in, in learning the Ghana language. He himself could speak some English, um, and he worked at the school. We also know that Walker um, had much interest in Aboriginal people um, from documented accounts, and we also know that in the 1860s, when she was in Victoria, that she collected the um, really rare uh, drawings by Tommy McRae, the quote, quote artist Tommy McRae, so she had really a significant eye in collecting works by Aboriginal artists as well. But to just end by looking at the works in a little bit more detail, it is interesting to note that Malawira Burka is presented in a kind of European, um, in European attire. And this wasn't uncommon for him to be wearing this attire um, from all accounts, especially as this kind of status of an honorable um, constable, police constable. However, many people have noted that um, although he is in this attire, he's still in a sailor's shirt, which was dressed for the, la the labouring class. Makata, or Magata, on the other hand, um, her dress is a, is a little bit um, more of a combination, perhaps, of two worlds. So you can see just behind her that Teresa Walker has added a kind of decorative detail of, of what could be a digging stick. Um, and then she has just a very simple um, cloth 
that's wrapped around her, not unlike the way that the fabric was kind of wrapped around the bodies of other women by Teresa Walker um, at the time. So with this kind of um, neoclassical, again, approach of kind of um, revealing this bare shoulder, this bare left shoulder. Looking at the group portraits in which these two portraits are reproduced in or also appear in, um, you can kind of see that Walker has kind of approached her subjects in, in two ways. And they're not defined in my eye by um, ethnicity of the subjects, but rather by gender. So you can see that with the men, she's dressed all of them in uniform. So they're really identifying in what they're giving to society. They're in either um, kind of clerical uniforms or kind of police uniforms. They are members of government. Um, Governor Gray is in there with his wife, um, as well as other people of importance in the society, in Walker's eyes. Um, but then when it comes to the women, they are dressed in um, very much more glamorous kind of attire, attire that was in accordance with Walker's view as women, um, as really almost a part of, a part of the antique. So as women a little bit more romanticized um, than men, not necessarily a part of the kind of politics of society. They, for me, reinforce the kind of, yeah, romanticism of Teresa's attitude to women. Um, and they certainly have affinities with her early self-portrait in that manner. The last piece of the puzzle, which I'll just put out there before I end, I don't know how long I've been talking. There's a lot of information, I'm sorry. Um, but looking at this group portrait, questions also kind of come up to what kind of relationship um, Malawira Berke and Makata may have had. It was long assumed that they were husband and wife. Um, but in more recent research, this has really been thrown up into question as well. And when you see the group portraits, all the um, couples, so the husband and wives, Walker has done, has depicted them facing each other. So their profiles, are, they're viewing each other. Um, but Malawira Berke is at the very top and um, Makata is at the very bottom and they look the same way. So they're not looking at each other. She also never, never said that they were husband and wife. Um, and from all accounts, of course, Malawira had many wives, but never was um, a Makata named in our, in our history records. Not that that really can conclude to anything. Um, but one extra point of confusion may have been that George French Angus produced his own versions of Teresa Walker's portraits. So copying Teresa Walker's portraits, as he often copied other people, he, um, in his publication, which I think, Tony, you've got there, of, published in London in 1843, it was an anonymous publication, um, and it has a very unusual title. I wonder if I've got it. South Australia in 1842 by one who lived there nearly four years was the title. And you can see that he has um, taken his own kind of creative freedom in the way that he's depicted them. And he's given them the titles of Kurtamaru in brackets, King John, and then Makata in brackets, his wife. So perhaps the confusion started here. Um, it's difficult to know. So I've now given you what we know, what we don't know, what we need to know. Um, but in terms of Teresa Walker, um, as I said, from all accounts, she was this kind of strong-willed, determined person, artist, poet, um, who lived a life of both immense privilege but also extreme hardship. 
Um, she was described by other people not necessarily favor favorably. One revealing comment from a gentleman who met her, um, I'll read to you. He said, extremely abrupt in manner and so self-opinionated that when she asks you a question, she doubts the response, showing her displeasure by just grunting. <laughs> Um, but after her second husband died in 1869, until her own death of 1876, she is known to have sold work through various dealers, and her brother has mentioned that wax modelling really kept in the funds um, when other sources failed. So as I said, she was resilient um, and kind of had an unconventional approach to life, interested in the spiritual and at times the supernatural. Um, but she was a professional. She was devoted, as, as her poem said, to the power of art. Um, and she did produce one of the most important um, records of our early colonial history. Uh, so I'll leave it there. Thank you.